You are listening to the Life Community Church Sermon Podcast. Life Community is a church for the city, making much about the name of Christ. This podcast is available through all major platforms, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. If you enjoy and are challenged by our teaching, we invite you to subscribe to the channel on whatever platform you choose as we seek to anchor ourselves to the unchanging truth of God's Word together. Thanks for listening. into a, a new series based upon, uh, not based upon, the is the book of Hebrews. And so we're going to go through uh, the book of Hebrews. And, and here's the thing, we're going to be in this, I'm going to say this word for the first time this year, and some will be excited about it, some will roll your eyes, but we're going to be in this book all the way through Christmas. So we're going to be in this all the way to December. Some of you might want to go home and hang up a tree right now that I missed, that I put the word Hebrew. So uh, we're going to spend 26 weeks, and I promise you I didn't plan it this way, I just put it in the calendar and it came out this way. We're going to spend 26 weeks in this book to an attempt to plunder all the treasures of this wonderful, wonderful letter that was written for us and for them at the time. Uh, it, it, you know, I, I will say this, sometimes I, I want to mine things, I want to come through scripture and I want to pull out things that I like. Uh, I, I just, over the last month, have just enjoyed being slow and, and mining the truths in scripture uh, is a wonderful, wonderful thing for us to do. So I have made for you, and you can stop by the information and get this or take a picture of it, but it's the, the, the course of the sermons for the next 26 weeks, what we're going to be covering, what the title is, what the scripture is. I also listed some helpful resources like podcasts that you could listen to that will help you in this study. Even music, there's some really cool music that I listen to on Spotify that's just the scripture. Some of it's wrapped. Some of it's to d- different music, but it's just the scripture that you can meditate on. And there are other resources like other Bible studies, and there's even a book that you can read alongside of this. So feel free to stop by. On the back is just kind of an overview of what's going on, the who, what, wins, where, the, over, the themes, the outline of the text. It, it could be a good tool for you today. And so the book of Hebrews, it's a fascinating book. It really is. It is is like reading an Old Testament book that is chucked right in the middle of our New Testament. It's, It's 13 chapters that are just chalked full of Old Testament references, some 40 to 60 references based upon what experts believe is a quotation or not. It's second or third of all of the New Testament and bringing in passages from the Old Testament. The other two that are in that are the Gospel of Matthew and the book of Romans. But both of those books are much longer than the book of Hebrews. And so this is just full and condensed of Old Testament scripture and Old Testament passages. And so that's why we're kind of being slow with this book. The author of this book assumes that you know the Old Testament narrative. They assume that you know the Torah, that you know about the prophets, that you know about the leaders, that you can bridge the Old Testament into the new. And so part of the reason we're going to go slow here is that we can use this text as a springboard to understand the greater story of redemption. And we can also see how the Old Testament in the time before Christ prepares us and ushers us into the redemptive story of Jesus. And so who is the author of this book? Well, there's lots of debates 
Uh, our assumptions, if we're just reading the New Testament, uh, you and I today, knowing the sheer amount of scripture that the apostle Paul wrote, we would say, well, this has to be Paul. But uh, that is not necessarily the story. That has been an accepted belief within the church, but there's a couple good reasons to believe that somebody else wrote this book. Uh, first, if you have your Bibles, you're welcome to do this, but if you flip back to the, the, the book right before, the letter right before Hebrews, it's Philemon. And this was written by Paul. And, and Paul starts that letter out by saying this. He says, it says, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother. And then if we move to the book of Romans, which is Paul's most prolific theological book, he begins that letter by saying, Paul, a servant of Christ. And so all of this Pauline manuscript sort of begin with this very standard greeting from Paul that says who he is, he wishes grace and peace, but none of that is present here in the book of Hebrews. Uh, there's no greeting, it's just like, bam, we're in it. And the other reason, and the reason that I bring up authorship, uh, comes out of chapter two of this very book. In chapter two in Hebrews, the author says this, and this is telling uh, uh, of who wrote it. He says, how shall we escape if we, how, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard it. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Now, the author's reasoning for not neglecting our salvation gives us a bit of a clue on who wrote this text. He says, it, meaning the gospel, meaning salvation, was first declared by the Lord and then it was attested or passed down to us so he's including himself here. It was passed down to us by those who heard, not saw by those who heard. All the while God was bearing witness in the world through the Holy Spirit. And so what the author is saying here is that he did not see the presence of Jesus. That is what an apostle would be called. An apostle is somebody who has a firsthand witness of the works in the person of Jesus. Salvation came to this author by somebody fulfilling the great commission by going and telling all that Jesus commanded and did. We know, as we've read our scripture, that Paul, on the way to Damascus, had a divine encounter with the risen Savior, he saw Jesus. In fact, it was so physical, it was so glorious in nature that Paul was blinded. He was blinded by his interaction with Jesus. And so the admission here in chapter two seems to preclude Paul from being a writer of this book. Now, there is a debate on that, but it is the longstanding position of the church that Paul didn't write the book of Hebrews. Some say it was Barnabas, which I, I, would, I would be all for that. I love Barnabas. I think it would be cool if he wrote this book. Uh, some say it's a guy named Apollos. Honestly, we really don't know. But what we can take heart in is that the Holy Spirit of God, loving his creation, wrote this book through the hands of whoever wrote it to tenderly guide and correct and move his people both then and still today to move us towards holiness and righteousness and joy. And so this letter written 65 AD 
It was written before the destruction of the temple that happened in 70 AD in Jerusalem. Uh, we believe that it was written to a small, a couple of small house churches in the area of Rome at this time. Uh, so know that there was no mega church in this day. There wasn't churches even our size. Uh, there were just literally 20 or so people who could cram into some guy's house who loved Jesus and they edified the scriptures. They sang, they worshiped. And these people in this time in Rome, essentially, they live in no man's land. They are not accepted by the culture. This book was written on the heels of an emperor named Claudius. And Claudius blamed his failures as a leader on Christians. And so he persecuted and he expelled them from the land of Italy at will. And it's written before the rise of an emperor named Nero. And Nero would slaughter scores of Christians in his time. And so these people just say uh, very lightly, they are hard pressed. They are outcast uh, from culture. They're even, if they have Jewish heritage, they're disowned by their relatives. In fact, part of the reason that the author writes this to this church is an attempt to stop the influence of those who had been in the church who are now reverting back to the old sacrificial systems. They're reverting back to old orthodoxic uh, Judaism. And they were trying to steer the rest of the church in that direction. And so we get a, a great picture of a believer that is in struggle. And so what we can say, if we, we strip down what this book is, what it really is, is this is a pastor speaking to a congregation. This is people like you and I who didn't see Jesus face to face, but we heard him. This is people, these are people who are walking by faith and not by sight. What a wonderful gift that God gives us in this scripture. Not just that it's written from a perspective that we can understand of people who don't have firsthand knowledge of Jesus, but also that it's written about a people we can empathize with. What a joyful truth that today we feel the effects that, that faith isn't the esteem of our culture today. We find ourselves increasingly hard-pressed and passed by. And our beliefs are often ridiculed and shamed in culture. And there are people around us that, that want to change the message. They want to change the truth so we can fit in, so we can be valued. Our faith seemingly has no advantages like them in this time in the world. And so Hebrews contends to us that, one, we strive to keep the hope and the message of the gospel pure. We strive to keep it pure, that we cling to one another. But second, is that we remind ourselves that the Lord prevails. Because in our history books, we can read about the Roman Empire. We can read about Claudius, and we can read about Nero. And we understand this, that they're dead. And that empire is no more. But we gather here today as God's people. We are still standing today, coming in here today to center our lives and our worship around the living Savior and his living word. And so we rejoice in that today. Uh, Kent uh, Hughes writes in a, a two-volume uh, commentary on Hebrews. He writes about the book of Hebrews, and he says this. He says, the healing method of the writer of Hebrews, as we shall see, is to lift the sun higher and higher and higher. 
He is sure that the eloquence of Christ's person will help his readers meet the challenges ahead. For him, holding up Christ is the most practical thing on earth. Indeed, Jesus understood and exalted eloquently informs every area of our lives. And so that's what we want to do in reading the book of Hebrews today and through the rest of these 26 weeks is to make Jesus higher and higher and higher. And for us, that means it costs us this, is that we must become lesser and lesser and lesser to do that. And so let's jump in our text today and starting in Hebrews chapter one, verses one through four. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Having become as superior to angels as the name has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Lord, we just pray that you would use this scripture to bring joy and gladness, conviction and encouragement into our heart. Lord, we pray that your spirit would move in our lives to bring this word alive. We know that your word doesn't return void, that you will do a work in us. And so Lord, open us to the fact that you wanna talk to us today. We love you, Jesus, and we pray this in your beautiful name, amen. And so let's just break this down verse to verse. So verse one starts out very Star Wars-ish, right? Long ago in a galaxy far, far away. Long ago at many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. And so it is the long history of God to come in a variety of ways to communicate to his people. Now, I think that it's important as we talk about how God communicated with his people that we don't take for granted the fact that he did because he didn't need to speak to his creation. God doesn't need to reveal himself to his creation. That's an act of mercy. The scripture says that creation itself testifies to who our God is, testifies to us. So God speaking to us is pure grace. It's pure mercy. Creation itself testifies, but he still communicates with us. We are also responsible for the undoing of his good creation, that we through sin and disobedience have perversed it. And so as we talk about the many ways in which God spoke to our people and speaks to us, let us first give thanks for the fact that he does and is still talking to us today. In our scriptures, In the Old Testament, we see God speak in lots of different ways, through visions, through burning bushes, right? Through steel, small voices, through thunder and lightning, through clouds and fire. God speaks through men and women, rulers and leaders and prophets, through dreams and parables. God comes to his people. He has not lacked on his attempts to gain the attention of his people to instruct them. But what the writer of Hebrew indicates for us is that something changed. Something happened. Remember, his attempt here is to keep people sliding backwards into the old system, back into sacrifice, back into Judaism. Something changed, he said. And he says it here in chapter two. He says, but in these last days, 
So God spoke to us a lot, but now in these last days, now what does he mean by last days? What he means by last days is this is the final era. This is the age of the Messiah, the last age before God comes and establishes his everlasting throne and glory here on earth. Uh, This isn't meant for the people in Rome to read this and say, hey, God's coming next week. All you got to do is just stay in your house and wait as if we're waiting for Jesus as some repairman coming to our house that's going to be there from 10 to 2 and you just have to wait. We're not waiting on a Jesus who seems to be late. We are living in light of the fact that he has come and that the age of grace and his kingdom is being ushered in. This is the last era and his return is imminent. Why? Because everything that needed to be said and everything that needed to be done was done by Christ. All that needed to be said was said. He has spoken in these last days by his son. So people say all this stuff, reader, but in this last day, he has spoken through the son. And so what he's implying is that Jesus Christ is the final and sufficient word. And by him and through him, all that has been needed, as he said, and all that has been needed to be done was. There is no more need for new revelation. There is nothing better. There is nothing wiser. There is nothing more important in our lives and in the world than Jesus Christ. Jesus on the cross says these wonderful words, right? It is finished. And it was. It was finished. And so, friends, all we need for salvation and godly living is in the hope and the person and the words of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Now, this this is a problem, okay? This is a problem for anyone who would want to tell you that God had something else to reveal to his creation. Now, this is a problem for lots of people. It's a problem for somebody who's a Mormon. Now, I'm not saying this to demean anybody. If you're in here visiting us and and you're a Mormon, there's a problem here. There's There's a problem here because if you're a Mormon, what you believe is that Joseph Smith brought another revelation to humanity. That in 1827 in New York State, that God through angels spoke to Joseph Smith to reveal a new way because the old way had been corrupted. And of the many words that Joseph Smith spoke about Jesus, some of the most awful, in my opinion, are, are this that, that he teaches us that Jesus wasn't the God, but he was a God. That he was a God merely because of his holy and righteous relationship with God. He had a great relationship with God. And here's the thing that Joseph Smith contends that you can be like Jesus. Through living holy and righteous, you can in fact be a God. And they contend, and maybe you have seen the commercials, that the Book of Mormon is just another testament to Jesus Christ. Essentially, they're saying, if you love the Bible, if you love the Bible, like, you're going to love this. You're going to absolutely love this. Even though, even though their scripture, their scripture is at odds with that statement. And their, the scripture, uh, the Book of Mormon and Nephi Uh, it, It says this in Nephi 29, it says, thou fool, thou shall say a Bible. We have got a Bible and we have, and we have no more, we have need no more Bible, right? And so what is this bait and switch? 
That's, that's all it is. Have you ever switched cell phone companies and they said to you that you can have your number, you can keep your phone, we'll give you $600 to come to our, our, our business. And you get there and you, and you want to use your phone, you want to use your number, and they'll say, oh, you need a SIM card. Right? You got the wrong SIM card. Or even this happened, your software is old. We can't run our systems on this. You're going to need a new phone. Why do they move it? Because a little truth is more deceptive than no truth at all. And so what, what, this, what this statement of if you love the book of, of Jesus, if you love the New Testament, then you love the book of Mormon. It's deceptive because it's a, it's a little true. It's a little true. It's a bait and switch, right? And so there is a problem with that. There is a big problem with that because it's in direct conflict to the scripture. Jesus is the final word. There is no more need for any other revelation, lest the the cross of Christ be meaningless. Paul says in the book of Galatians, even if an angel were to come down and give you a different gospel, they're wrong. And why can we believe that Jesus is the complete and sufficient and final word from God? Well, well, the author says that we need to consider a few of his offices, a few of his role that, that make him very credible to make this claim. And so the first he says here in chapter two is that he was appointed heir of all things through whom he also created the world. Now, it's a common reality in past societies that the son would inherit the estate, right? That namely, the firstborn son. So this image of son and father naturally indicates that Jesus is naturally the heir to all things. Heir meaning that someday he will reign over all things by his authority. Everything will be under his lordship. I like how John Piper wrote about this. He said, God, who in the end will have everything under his complete control and ownership, all things, all land, all water, all fire, all wind, all energy, all natural resources, all nations, all military might, all buildings, all bacteria and viruses, all angels, all demons, all spiritual and material beings except God the Father. And this list includes you and I, everything that is substantial and everything that is insubstantial. There is nothing that will not be under the lordship of our king. Why? Why? Because he is the creator of all things. He is the creator of all things. And as the creator of the world, creation is his by design. But also he is heir of all things because he is the world and its people's redeemers. Not only did he create the world, but he redeemed the world. Now, suppose you were an inventor and you made the best mosquito trap the world has ever seen. Any mosquito that came in within one mile of your mosquito masher perished. It was completely safe. You could put it up around your kids and your dogs. And it's just, it's a wonderful thing. You made it, you got a prototype, you go to show it to your relatives and you hand it to your, your, your nephew, who you kind of like, and he just takes your prototype and he smashes it on the ground, on the driveway. And there it is, all of your life's work in a million pieces on the driveway. And you are angry and you know that you will never be able, you will never be able to put it back together and you will never be able to go through the process in which you created that. And in your anger, you say, I'm done with it. Now, suppose somebody came to you the next day and said, hey, 
I saw in your driveway a million-piece mosquito masher. Do you mind if I take that home and try to fix it? And you oblige him, and you say, I don't want anything to do with it. I'm done with that. And they take it home, and lo and behold, they get it to work. They fix it. They restore it. Now, who is the rightful owner of that mosquito masher? The one who restored it. The one who set it right. What this is saying is that not only does God have the legal precedence as Lord over all via his creation, from being the creator of all things, but that in after humanity had broke it through sin, that God never disowned him. And in fact, he set the course to redeem his creation. Christ is rightfully heir to creation on two criteria. One, that he created it, and the second being that he redeemed it. And so what does that mean for us? What means this is that we can rest assured that in Christ, all things will be made right. All injustices will be made just. All tears will be wiped. Everything that was wrong will be right. And look, that is a joyful position when you surrender to the authority and the lordship of Jesus Christ because it allows you to walk in meekness. Meekness is the state in which you walk with your father. You trust that he knows what's right. You trust that he knows what's going on. And we remember the words of Jesus in this this wonderful sermon called the Beatitudes, this blessed, happy life that Jesus gives to us. He says what? Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. The writer says that he is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus is God. God is like Jesus because Jesus is God. All that can be known about God is found in his son. He is God in every way. There is no dimming. There was nothing lost in the translation simply because Jesus has a different role in the Godhead than the Father does. In the early 300s, meaning 380s, uh, there was a group of church leaders that got together at what is called the Council of Nicaea. And at that meeting, they set a, 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 a task of edifying the most basic fundamental tenets of the Christian faith. This is in 325 AD. And they developed a creed that we can read today. That's why I love creeds. We get to read what our ancestors wrote about. And in 325, the the Nicene Creed was, was made. And in that creed, it says this about the sun. It says that God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, consubstantial with the Father, through him all things were made. To know Jesus is to know God. Jesus says, if you know me, you know the Father. When we read about Jesus, we are reading about God. When we hear about Jesus, we are hearing about God. And so as image bearers, we reflect the image of God into the world. But those of us who by faith have been adopted as sons and daughters of God through faith, by grace, we have been given the Holy Spirit of God who reigns in our lives to make a more perfect image of God reflect through us. Jesus is different than us because all of who he is radiates the glory of God. Him and his most fundamental being is God himself, and he has all the divine power 
that God has. It says that he upholds the universe by the word of his power, which says that Jesus is actively sustaining the universe, the cosmos, through his word and his power, right in this very moment. So in the scripture, not only do we see Jesus as creator, redeemer, inheritor, radiator, but he's also sustainer. And so all of the course of our lives, all of the course of humanity and its history, all the events, all of the happenings are held together by Jesus, sustained by Jesus. Paul, the apostle Paul writes in the letter to the Colossians, he says, he is set before all things and in him all things hold together. And in my head, I think about that. I think how incredibly difficult would that be to sustain the world? But we read this glorious truth that was given to us by the prophet Isaiah, who says, have you not heard? Have you not heard? Have you not known that the Lord is an everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth, and he does not grow faint nor weary. His understanding is unsearchable. What this is saying is that God never gets tired of ruling. He never gets tired of sustaining. I am dead at the end of the day after watching and being with three loud kids. God sustains the universe and he never grows weary. And what that means for us is that there is nothing in our lives today that the Lord doesn't know about. That there is nothing in our lives that the Lord isn't actively involved with trying to redeem and renew. The scripture says that our God has the power to change the fate of the smallest lily of the field, but he can also change the course of the human heart. And we sit in here today as testimony of a living God who works in our lives. He says, after making purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus purifies the world through a once and forever sacrifice for sin. The blood of the righteous, perfect, supreme God of the universe was shed on the cross. For God so loved the world that he gave up his only son. In Jesus, God has removed every obstacle every hurdle for creation to come back into a whole saving relationship with God. The intent and the very purpose of our design, we were made to enjoy God. His sacrifice then is so complete, it's so full, it's so satisfying that our scripture says that he sat down. Now, under the law, in the Old Testament, in the old sacrificial system, we can kind of remember that there are sacrifices that needed to be made in various instances at various times for various things with various animals. But those sacrifices, they were never sufficient. They were never complete, which means this, is that the Levitical priest of that day who housed the temple, who made the sacrifices, they were never allowed to sit down. In fact, there wasn't a chair in the temple. Because as they finished one sacrifice, there was another to be made. There was no rest to be found between God and man. There was an ongoing propitiation or atonement. And so what the author is telling us about Jesus is that his death and sacrifice was so complete and so final that he sat down because there'll never be need for another one. That through Jesus, God made peace with creation 
and that there is rest for us to find, that there is forgiveness for us to be known. There is joy to be known in how complete and satisfying the works of Christ was. And then lastly, in verse four, he says, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Now, we're gonna spend in chapter two quite a bit of time talking about angels. Angels is a heavy topic here in the first two chapters. But what he is referencing here is that essentially there is a problem in this day of people seeking divine angels to worship. They're using uh, what they call communication with the angels to amplify their message. And so they'll say that, hey, I, I was just heard an angel last night and he said this to me. And so they use it to, to increase the validity of their message But what this is saying is that if you hear somebody confess to you that they heard an angel, he told me to do this, and it contradicts the word of Jesus, know this, you're being lied to. Now, today, we don't don't tend to worship angels. Now, I don't know what you do in your private time. I don't know if you're, you're searching angels to worship. Uh, I don't, I, that would be interesting. I, I, I don't know if you, you go home and, and think, uh, worship angels, and then you go back, and Jim, uh, at work, I had an angel talk to me last night. Uh, I think you're supposed to give me your lunch today. I, I don't think that that happens today. But make no mistake, like we today are still, we're still seeking fresh revelation, right? And so we scour the news, we scour social media, we scour websites and the world to receive fresh revelation, new trends, something new and inspiring, motivation, something that we believe will deliver to us the healthy, wealthy, happy lifestyle that we so desire. Friends, what we are reminded here is that there is no better name than the name of Jesus, that there is no more excellent name than his. There is no better truth than his. All we need for living and flourishing in this life is found in him. And so what our author is doing is he is setting up what he's going to say to them later. Because what he has said is essentially this. Hey, you're hearing all sorts of noise around you, aren't you? There are all sorts of people telling you what you should and shouldn't do. There are all all sorts of people saying, hey, you need to go back to this or you need to do this. They're, they're, They're trying to convince you that you're doing something wrong. They're trying to educate you on what the future is going to be like. But remember that the only word that matters is the one that you first heard at salvation. The only truth that matters is Jesus. And if you're hearing something other than what you were taught by the eyewitnesses, know this, that you're being led astray. You see, humanity, we have an issue. I have an issue. You have an issue. We are constantly prone to wonder from our God. We are constantly prone to forget our God. All we need to do is read our scripture and read about our ancestors who, despite the fact God delivers them, parts the Red Sea. I mean, how amazing would it be to walk on dirt with two huge walls of water next to you? He constantly delivers them over enemies that he shouldn't, gives them food when they don't have it. What do they continually do? They forget. They turn their backs on him. I mean, we read this story in the book of Hosea, right? In Hosea 13, the very end of Hosea, it says this in chapter 13. 
The prophet Hosea said, it was I who knew you in the wilderness and in the land of drought. But when they had grazed, they became full. They were filled and their hearts, their heart was lifted up. Therefore, they forgot me. This is the course of us, right? Constantly thinking more of ourselves, filling ourselves to the world and constantly forgetting God. And it can be baffling, right? It can be baffling to read the stories in the Old Testament. And here in Hebrews. And to think, why would they do that? Here we have the great, as the book of Hebrews calls it, the great creator, redeemer, inheritor, radiator, purifier, redeemer, ruler. No one on earth has ever fulfilled one of those offices. No one could compare it all to Christ. Yet Christ fulfilled so many that it's staggering. And we are baffled as we read our text about people forgetting God. How could you forget a God like this? But we are also baffled with how we ourselves constantly belittle him in our lives. We are frustrated, are we not? with ourselves, for losing touch with our Savior, going long stretches without his presence? Why can't we delight in a God who seems above all things worthy of being delight, delighted in? Well, I want to speak towards our forgetfulness of God as we close. You know, empathy is one of the most powerful abilities that humanity has. Jesus, long before empathy came into the human dialect, called us to be empathetic. He said, Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself. That's a very empathetic savior or statement to treat others as you ought want to be treated. Why? Because a human's ability to be empathetic has the ability to change our lives in a hurry. When we put ourselves in the shoes of another and we're empathetic towards them, when we choose to know the story of somebody else's, it changes how we treat them, how we regard them. Now, we can still disagree with them, but it changes the temperature of our relationship. And one of the strongest ways for empathy to come into our lives is to experience equal roles and experiences as somebody else. Those experiences change us. They make us more empathetic. They become guiding posts in our lives. Now, here's where Jesus comes in. The challenge for us is that the name of Jesus is so exalted. It is so much more excellent that we can't rightly empathize with him as an equal. We can't empathize with him. We, We can be sad about the way Jesus was treated. We can sympathize with his plight, but we can't empathize him as an equal. Now, think about it this way. My relationship with my dad changed when I became a father. Why did it change? Because I realized what my dad had to do. Now, when I was a teenager, I thought he was dumb, right? I don't, I don't think he's dumb anymore. Uh, being a pastor today, I far away have a greater ability to empathize with other pastors in this day and age. But there is never a reality in which we will ever be equal or have the ability to empathize with Jesus. And because we can't empathize with Jesus, hold on, we always are constantly devaluing him in our lives. We forget about him. We belittle him. 
He's just so much greater than we ever could imagine that we hardly ever esteem him as he ought to be esteemed, which is not for our good. And so the constant message of Scripture is our God trying to get the attention of his people to remind them of who he is. And the author of Hebrews is setting the same course. Remember who Jesus is. Lift him higher and higher and higher. He is so much greater. He is so much supreme. More supreme than than you can imagine. And so I say this to remind you that your struggle in belittling God is natural and common. We are wayward people. But what is joyous is, is that knowing that although we can't empathize with our Savior, that out of his love, Christ chose to take on flesh, that he might empathize with us. He knows all our weaknesses and all of our tendencies, and we're going to talk about that weakness later in Hebrews. And because God has experienced all the weaknesses of this human flesh, he has not left us alone. And John, Jesus says these words in chapter 14. He says, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to you remembrance all that I have said to you. God in his mercy and because of his redemption has given us the spirit to reside and remain with us, to encourage us, to convict us, to guide us. And so friends, all of our right hope and joy in this life depends on us walking in step with his spirit. We forget, we belittle, we demean, but the Holy Spirit can't do any of those things. All the Holy Spirit can do, he can only elevate God in our lives. And so what that means is that we are solely dependent, not only for God, for our salvation, but for our relationship with him too. And so let it be the desire of our hearts and the prayer of our lives that God would humble us that we keep us in step with the Spirit, to depend on the Spirit, not on ourselves, because He is a name more excellent than ours. He is the creator, redeemer, inheritor, purifier, ruler, radiator of the world. And this is good news, friends. This is good news because it says to you that your relationship with Jesus is never going to be about your status. It's never going to be about your power. It's never going to be about your intellect or your ability. That our relationship with God is available to those who come and simply die to themselves. That humbleness and weakness and meekness is the traits of those who love the the Lord. And that in our dependency and joyful worship of a king who is higher than ours, that God, than us, that God does the work, that he grows the fruit and he brings us rest. Friends, that is good news for us today. Looking forward to reading through the rest of Hebrews with you.